Good morning. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. Right now is October, October 1st, and as Liz Lemon would say, shut it down. The United States is closed for business. This morning, <laughs> this morning's show, number 104, culminates two full years of podcasts for us. Wow. And we appreciate your continued support. Yet today not only marks this as well as 17 years that I've been together with my wife, but also begins an interesting month of themed 42 minutes in which we explore our humanness by way of our head and heart. Shows this month reflect this theme by contemplating our unique physiology, our consciousness, our myths, and our relationship to time. We kick off this month of shows today by considering the power of now. Not finding, not by finding transcendence in a crystal with Eckhart Tolle, <laughs> or by, or by entering the circle with Dave Eggers. Although we do question if all that happens must be known, but perhaps by looking down from the eye in the pyramid, we can wonder why everything happens now. And how come it's so shocking? Hello, I am the anti-Mason William Morgan, and today we're spending 42 minutes with the celebrated media theorist and writer Douglas Rushkoff. Mr. Rushkoff is the author of Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now, as well as a dozen other best-selling books on media, technology, and culture, including Program or Be Programmed, Media Virus, Life, Inc., and the novel Ecstasy Club. He also wrote the graphic novels Testament and ADD and made the television documentaries Merchants of Cool, The Persuaders, and Digital Nation. whole list of accomplishments. We are, he lives now in New York and lectures about media, society, and economics around the world. More information about him and his work can be found at his website, Rushkoff.com. Hello, and thank you for joining us, Mr. Rushkoff. How are you? Howdy. Good to be with you. Great. Thank you. I want to start by uh, thanking you for such a thoughtful book. Oh, thank you. Thanks for reading it. You're <laughs> you... <laughs> it's a th asking a lot these days to get the hours of someone's time to actually sit and uh, engage with ideas, you know, beyond a, a tweet or so. Well, <laughs> you bet. I'm, I actually enjoy reading. So, um, but in, in interestingly enough, you know, it does encompass a lot, but there is quite a bit of compression. It seems like I wouldn't say that it's particularly dense. Like it's not asking too much from a reader to read. Um, it has a really nice scope. But the thing that I take away from it is uh, hope, which is which is great. Well, yeah, I, I certainly would hope so. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to do with the book, I mean, and it's not, I mean, it's written more like an old school uh uh, book that kind of has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a progression to it. It's not just, you know, a bunch of ideas to apply to business and then throw it, throw it away. Um, so what I was trying to do is help kind of reacquaint people with their, with their humanity, you know, and and get people to consider whether there's aspects of of our humanity, of human experience, of being a a person going through time that can't really be recreated digitally. You know, what, what are those quirky things? What is it about 
about human beings that's that's special. You know what what's really different between us and the zombies. You know, so that we can uh, feel good really about being human rather than just feel you know inferior to um, you know some supercomputer of tomorrow. Well, could could you unpack the notion of present shock, the concept, you know, and explain where that comes from, and 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 what the you know what your in, intention with the book was? Well, yeah, I mean, present shock is as as I define it anyway. I guess I'm allowed to. Um, <laughs> it's the it's the human response to living in a world where everything happens now. You know, it's it's this sort of real time, always on existence that doesn't really have beginnings or ends, doesn't have uh, uh, you know, intentions and goals. It sort of just, it just is. And I was writing it in some ways in, in response or as an update of, uh, Alvin Toffler's famous book, Future Shock from the 1970s. Oh. You know, and he was arguing that things were changing so fast that the only thing we could adapt to is change itself. And it was part of this sort of late 20th century futurism movement where everybody was looking forward. What's going to happen next? What's the next big thing? The stock market was going up. Technology was increasing. Everything was just going, going, going. And I felt like, you know, once we hit the year 2000, the stock market crashed, the dot-com bubble ended, and we got 9-11. We experienced all these discontinuities, almost as if, uh, Western civilization, this thing that we've been building and pushing and leaning forward and speculating about, kind of reached its peak. It, and I know I'm not the only one that felt like there was this uh, uh, almost uh, anticlimax of like, now what? You know, <laughs> and I feel like people in the 21st century were no longer looking forward to the turn of the millennium. We're no longer looking forward to the end of the century. We kind of just are. We're here now. And people are looking, well, what's it worth? What, what are my investments worth? What is my life about? What are we doing here? You know, it's not where are we going so much as where, where are we now? And that was a, a shift that sort of that combined with all the, the kind of false nowness of digital technology, that this valuing of the, of the recent over the relevant, you know, the, what's the last tweet that happened about that subject rather than you know, some book or article that may have been written a whole month ago, you know, which must be irrelevant now, um, you know, that, that these two uh, sort of these two views of the present, these two views, these two experiences of, of the now were in conflict. You know, one is this, I've got to keep up with the Twitter stream now. And that's a real false now versus the now that I feel like we're not giving enough attention to. And that is the, what is my body, mind, and, and emotional, uh, uh, you know, what is this being that I am, what's happening to me right now? Where am I now? What is my, what is my body, mind, and emotions feel? You know, how am I moving through um, this thing called life? And that's, um, that's a different now that I feel like is getting kind of short shrift in, the, uh, in this uh, era of immediacy. And, and do you unpack that a little bit in the book with the notion of Kronos and Kairos. Could you explain those concepts? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The the Greeks, you know, trust me, God bless the Greeks. Um, the ancient Greeks had these two different words for time. You know, one was Kronos, which is like time on the clock. You know, I, I crashed the car at 4.01. You, know, you understand that. It's, it's that moment. But 
But this other idea they had for time was called Kairos, you know, K-A-I-R-O-S, Kairos. Kairos is more like human timing or even readiness. You crash the car at 401, but what time do you tell dad that you crashed the car? You know, 417? You know, no, you tell dad you crashed the car, you know, after he's had his drink and before he's opened the bills, right? It's the sense that's right. another kind of time, the time that humans live in that, that only humans can really recognize and the clock can't tell you. So it's sort of negotiating between those two, you know, and throughout history, you know, there's been really different versions of Kronos competing to pull us out of Kairos. You know, whether it's the calendar that pulls us out of our um, appreciation for the natural rhythms of nature, whether it's the clock that gets us to work um, by the hour, you know, punch the clock and live like a machine rather than just create value with your hands and make stuff. Or now digital time, which sort of asks us to, to live in these pulses rather than in the continuous flow of reality that humans actually live in. So online would be Kronos? For the most part, yeah. I mean, it could it, it could have been Kairos. You know, when the internet first came around, you know, I was a slacker from way back. You know, I thought that the internet would give us more time because it would give us the ability to disengage from this sort of real-time, time-is-money, industrial-age uh, working clock and start to do things in our own time. Remember when the net came around, everyone was supposed to be working at home in their underwear in their own time. You know, that, that you, you would download a conversation from a bulletin board and you would take overnight to respond to it. And you'd write one perfect paragraph and upload it by morning and you would sound, you know, as smart as Christopher Hitchens. You know, the beauty of the internet <laughs> was that you had all the time in the world to do things because you could do it in your own time. It's an asynchronous technology. So I thought that the net would actually enhance Kronos or, or Kairos. But then what happened was, you know, we, we ended up seeing the net instead as kind of the salvation for the for the stock exchange. We we strap these devices to ourselves and try to suck more time out of ourselves rather than doing things in our own time. You know, we respond to every tweet and vibration and right. and pulse that comes in, putting ourselves not off the clock, but on the clock even worse. So I I, I feel like the way we've applied it, it's amplified Chronos. It's amplified this kind of industrial age dependence on, on efficiency and time is money, where what it still could do is um, kind of release us into the much more human time scale of, of Kairos. Could you speak in, uh, in your book, you speak about the Internet in terms of flow and storage. Could you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, on a really on a practical level, you know, when people ask me, well, what do I do? You know, what do I do about this right now? I'm just confused. I'm, I'm freaked out. You know, it, it starts really simply, it's just looking at, you know, different uh, technologies and applications and deciding, you know, how do they work and how should I engage with them? You know, one really simple divide is to look at, at things in terms of whether they're, they're flow applications or, or storage applications. In other words, is this, is this a medium that I'm using that where things can stack up and, and wait? Or is it something that is more like a stream that I experience just like in a little moment? So I would say, I mean, a book is a storage medium. It's this big thing that sits there, right? You, you compress a whole lot of time and years of work and you make this thing. 
So a book is something that you kind of read in its entirety. An email message is even something that you read in its entirety in order to understand what happened. If you just read a teeny little bit and skim an email and then respond, you end up getting in trouble that way, as we all have. Oh, you didn't read that last part where she said, divorce <laughs> or something, you know, oops, yeah. Um, or that you're fired or whatever it is. You gotta read the whole thing. On the other hand, there's other media that are around now, like I would argue maybe Twitter, um, that are flow media. And these are media, you can't read the whole thing. You, don't, you can't open Twitter and read everything that happened since the last time that you opened it. You know, that's gone, that passed. Twitter is much more like the weather. You know, you kind of dip your toe in and see what's being tweeted about, what's going on now. That's not where you catch up. You can't catch up with Twitter. You'll, you'll die if you try to catch up. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> In 2010, I had to quit because I was, I was treating it as a storage medium. Exactly. And, you know, it's like putting your mouth on a fire hose. You know, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. You can watch it. You can look at the waves, you know, and try to get a sense of, oh, you know, kind of what's trending. Is it, you know, Iran or Charlie Sheen? And and you speak about that's one of the really exciting things. How, like, you, you should probably tell us now about Miley Cyrus. In theory, yeah. <laughs> God bless. You know the interesting thing about Miley Cyrus is uh, um, is that she uh, something's happening now. She's doing something that she's doing something that ten years ago. Everyone would say, oh, she's just doing what Madonna did or what Britney did. But, you know, enough time has passed that and, and our culture is such a short memory now and kids are so young that, you know, for teenagers, Miley Cyrus on the VMAs, that was the weird, daring, strange, that, unprecedented thing. That was their Madonna. That was their VMA. That was exactly but there's no history, so there Madonna. is no Madonna. Right. Right. Because Madonna's some old lady. I mean. You know, Madonna, <laughs> Madonna, kids is like, you know, it's like, you know, whatever, you know, uh, uh, Frank Sinatra to us or something. You know, it's it's that it's that long ago. I mean, and, and it's funny, you know, uh, it's easy to condemn her. And I don't think it's art or whatever what she's doing, but she's just playing this thing. This is this is what gets you the hits. You know, there, it's always going to especially when you're in a. a, a a kind of a flow medium like like Twitter or uh, or Instagram or whatever kids are using now. And when you're in a flow medium, it's always going to trend towards the more sensationalist, right? So the way you the way you get hits is with wardrobe malfunctions and things like that. You know, that's the way <laughs> uh, that's the way to get attention on that time scale. You know, well, it, and you yeah. mentioned that in the book that. There's the in the news cycle. There is this standing wave. They've got all this space they need to fill with something, and when you have a big moment, and then after that big moment's gone, what do you fill that space with? And and you mentioned Charlie Sheen in that instance, but uh, and that's why I bring up Miley Cyrus. Well, yeah, I mean it's you know the when it's interesting. I, I've always looked at at the the media less in terms of its content and more in terms of its kind of readiness for a story you know and when it's ready um it is it is like a standing wave and whatever story or content or thing that happens to step into it that's what gets carried along 
So it's all really a matter of timing. You know, so, okay, there's this big, you know, Syria thing and chemical weapons and everybody's all into this big, serious story. And that creates this vacuum where something really innocuous and stupid and humiliating has to step in there. So, you know, I think Miley sort of stepped in there for that one, although I don't know that it's this quite quite the national, you know, story that it that it needs to be. But but it's sort of the way the way the the our, our attention works really is. Um, I think less about specific content and more about what's going to come. I mean, there are real stories, like you know the Boston bombing, say, um, but the way that they're digested and uh, you know by our medium is much more is much more real time and uh, uh, in some ways unprocessed and uh, and desperate. Uh, you know, it's a much more of a of a kind of a media information. Uh, purgatory or plateau where things just happen in real time and the even the newscasters you see they're kind of glazed over and confused and trying to think is there a way I can wrap a narrative around this thing probably not oh my (laughs) god well here's the next thing you know so it's this always on perpetual crisis um, without any ability to, to really create meaning you know, and because we've given up on the ability to, to create or find meaning or, or have any conclusive thoughts, we just put on debates, you know, and we just decide, oh, left and right are about equal, you know, Obama wants to kill people, Obama wants health care. Yeah, all these opinions have the same merit. We're just in this ontologically relativistic haze and, you know, no one can, no one can conclude anything. I'm on a personal fence right now, and I was wondering if you could help me. I mean, there's a whole group of individuals that I see um, telling me how great it would be just to dive into to technology and just don't look back and just create Twitter and create Facebook. And and then there's this other, you know, more almost old-fashioned point of view of being more reserved about how many personalities and avatars I create online. Which one is... I mean, is it old-fashioned not just to dive head into all of this noise, just go right after it, or? Well, I mean, you can you can you can dive in if you want, but but as long as you dive in consciously, you know. I think the 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 trick is people are diving into things that they don't understand. They're incorporating applications and websites and things into their lives without understanding what they're for. You know, it's kind of the subject of my last book, Programmer Be Programmed, that, you know, you look, talk to kids who are using Facebook and they think Facebook is there, that the purpose of Facebook is to help them make friends. You know, and I promise you, they're not sitting in the, in the boardroom at Facebook saying, you know, how are we going to help little Johnny have more enduring relationships? <laughs> right? They're just wondering how are we going to monetize Johnny's social graph. That's, that's their job. You know, and if you don't know what things are for, you end up at the mercy of them rather than in control of them. I mean, I do believe that in some ways you've got to embrace where we're at. You've got to keep going. You know, it's like if you're, if you're doing, you know, whitewater rafting or something and you get into the rapids, you can't just stop. You know, the way to gain control of your, of your vehicle, of your craft is to row harder. You know, you row harder, but when you row harder, you're, you're expressing your agency, but you have to actually row. 
right? It's not a matter of just throwing yourself into the curtain going, here I am in the new media space and I'm going to let all these apps take me to the next place. No, you're only, you're only successful to the extent that you're steering, that you're guiding the path. You know, if you're not exercising agency, then chances are someone else is exercising agency over you. And it might not even be a person. It could just be a corporation or a program or some, you know, some robot entity that, that they're building out in Stanford to suck more money out of you and, and more of your will. So, yeah, I'm all for doing this stuff, just doing it um, consciously. And that, sorry, that requires learning. That requires educating. You know, and it... it because if you don't, you end up untethered in that space. If you don't, you end up disconnected from your humanity, from your intentions, from the things that guide you through life. And then, you know, then it's really a lost cause. It seems like our, our technologies are presenting us with this huge contradiction in that one of the aims of humanity is to come together and feel open and connected. And on some level, Google does this for us. But on another level, it, it can be so easily exploited that we become paranoid and concerned that, you know, we're going to be taken advantage of. Uh, how do we reconcile that? Well, I don't think it's paranoid to think that you're going to be taken advantage of, right? Because none of these things are, are genuinely free. I mean, they, they're, they're, you're not paying with dollars, but you're paying with data. You know, you're paying in ways that come back to haunt you. You know, the ads you see, the, 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 your, even your Facebook feed is edited, in, it's edited by big data in order to get you to behave like the consumer they want you to be. You know, they figure out what are the most probable consumerist futures for you, and then they try to push those forward. So the novelty of your, the, the possible novelty of your actions um, goes down, right? If you're a person who there's a 70% chance that you're going to want to go on a diet next week, you're going to start seeing all ads for diets and articles for diets and updates for diets. They're going to get you to be that predictable and um, uh, sellable outcome. So um, no, you should you should be concerned. I don't think it's I don't think it's paranoid um, to see that that's the way these spaces work. And the 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 more conscious you are of that, um, I think the less that will depend on them for things that they don't offer the best. You know your friendships. Sorry, yeah, we have online friendships, and if you've got some rare disease, you know, yeah, your friendships with people on the internet about that are going to be stronger than your relationships in real life about that because they can understand, right, that you've got, you know, type three, whatever. Um, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't replace real life. There's a bandwidth of interaction that you get in real life with other people that Google and Facebook and Twitter can't approach. So it's a matter of recognizing, well, look, Twitter is really good for my national audience. You know, Google's really good for my, you know, engaging with the other people who are in very far away. But um, that doesn't uh, replace uh, the kinds of relationships that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years. The ones that uh, um, engage you on a, on, in, your, in your heart and soul, you know, they're the, the the ability to look in someone's eyes and see whether their their irises are getting bigger or smaller, to pace them with their with their rhythm of their breath. Those are the kind of things that the warmth of their body, you know, that you can really only get um, in real life. And that is 
that is our home turf, right? That is, that is our home field. That's where we have the home field advantage as human beings over corporations and governments and every other kind of entity that means to control us. Any advice on how to get people to put down their Facebook update when they're talking to you, though? I mean, put down the handheld and look you in the eye? It's tricky. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a matter of us doing it ourselves. The, the thing I have found, which is fun, is if you move through the world as a person who's not looking at the device, you tend to make eye contact with the others. You know, I feel like I'm part of this weird underground of people who are maintaining their human identity and everybody else is going into the kind of body snatcher identity. But the body snatcher people, they're so immersed in their stuff. I mean, you go to a doctor's waiting room and you see all the people are in there, but then there's like one other person who will make eye contact or at the train station or on the subway or in, in, in life. And you find those people and then you start engaging with them. And I think we can, I think we can build a culture that way. <laughs> you know, people don't respond well if you tell them to put that thing away. You know, they, they, don't, they don't like that. But, you know, you know, it depends what you're allowed to do. But, you know, touch their hand or make eye <laughs> contact with them. Or, um, there's ways to kind of re-seduce them. Um, back into the flesh. You just be as creepy as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I don't think it's creepy though. You know, I don't think it's that creepy. Um, or or to say, you know, you, you do say to somebody, you know, you know, God, you've got really nice eyes. They tend to look at you in the eye for a second. You know. Oh, that's nice. Or talk about how something makes you feel. You know, or say, God, I don't want to go to that restaurant. It's so noisy in there. I really want to hear you. Um, you know, there's ways. There's ways to slowly just to kind of compliment people on their physical presence with you. Just to say, God, I value this kind of time really with you in real life so much. Dale Carnegie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How <laughs> to win back humans. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, okay, that leads me to um, – Jaron Lanier wrote a book called You Are Not a Gadget, and and uh, in it he's, he's wondering about our now, whether or not we're creative or not anymore, and that if – is music evolving or if it's just – stagnant from the late 90s if it's never and I'm, I'm curious about your take on that oftentimes when we're stuck like we we can't see beyond our moment that when we're in our in our flow we can't we don't have the perspective to recognize the pattern but do you think you know in terms of it seems like in your book you say everything is everything and I recognize this now in that bands really find a a sound and they really like latch on to this we're into this specific thing and this is a you know like a this kind of band and this is a this kind of band you know but it's really really super genre specific like light jazz yeah i i mean it's tricky you know the the music industry got um i mean it got kind of destroyed by you know a combination of its own greed and its inability to contend with the digital you know, the, uh, it, it was really back in the CD era 
you know, where there was this sort of artificial bump in, in music sales because baby boomers were rebuying their record collections on CD. And then all the big media corporations started buying record companies. And then the profits went away once the record collections were complete and they started firing everybody. So the music industry lost its A&R people. You know, it lost its music experts. The FM radio dial was purchased by Clear Channel and basically uh, who took a, a scorched earth policy towards, you know, local expertise and music and started, you know, streaming stuff almost, you know, Pandora style, except not customized. And we ended up really losing the culture through which music was um, germinated and developed over time. You know, and we end up with, uh, you know, the voice. You know, I saw that YouTube of a, a sort of a joke YouTube of Bob Dylan going on the voice, you know, or John Lennon. You know, it's what would have happened if John Lennon was on the voice? You know, he wouldn't make it, of course. It <laughs> uh, wouldn't make it today um, in, in, in any uh, uh in any sense. Um, so, you know, there's that combination of what business has done to the music industry plus what, uh, what digital has done, which is create this kind of mashup music culture where uh, everything is these weird echoes and amalgamations of, of other things. You know, so it's really hard to have a culture, to have something developed or something to sort of gain traction the way um, various music genres develop traction over, you know, a decade or more of prog rock or metal or uh, any of these, uh, um, you know, any of these genres that grew over time. You know, it's really hard for Miley Cyrus or, uh, uh, you know, any of these any of these kids to uh, to grow, you know, to evolve. Um, which isn't to say it's not happening. It just tends to be happening in subcultures that are below the radar in one way or another. You know, the, 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 to get suddenly popular kind of kills, um, kind of kills your genre. But um, but they're happening. You know, they're happening. It's just people aren't making a ton of money doing it. I'm, I'm okay, and that was my question. So I mean, I I'm a Gen Xer, and so I definitely feel like. It, in my 20s there there's this you know there is this culture that i was part of like there's a voice and there's there's a sound and you know there's you know this whole thing this whole culture do you, you know do, do you see the same thing in millennials is is there something or is the, is it just lost in the in the flow um there's a culture in millennials the problem is right now millennials get the quickest and fastest reward by reaching out to a brand or celebrity through Facebook or Twitter and having that celebrity reach back to them somehow. You know, so you see kids kind of developing themselves by becoming uh, promoters of one sort or another, whether it's girls going to the mall and buying stuff and then, you know, they're called uh, uh, haulers. You know, and they make these videos of, oh, here's this shirt I bought and here's these shoes. And they're talking about them as if they're auditioning to be spokesmodels, right, for, for, for fashion. Or kids reaching out to One Direction or some other band. And then they get tweet, retweeted by the celebrity is that leg up. So I feel like we've got a generation of kids who look at marketing itself as the highest form of personal development. 
And that's a little scary. You know, that's, that's a little strange because I think they understand that the people who are actually doing the work are not the real winners. You know, Jay-Z, when he reaches the top of his game, he's not making music. He's selling an app for Samsung and that, that trades on the, the data <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the people who downloaded it. So it's really the object of the game becomes to be go meta, you know, become a marketer. And that's what gets me a little concerned. Okay, so the hope that I found in your book has to do, and this is this is why I appreciated it so much, has to do with how you define storage bias and cu- currency. And so I, I've always wanted to believe that people are basically good, and that oftentimes it's these forms and structures that we cre- create that actually program us and make us into. So I've always, you know, wondered, you know, is it capitalism? You know, is it is it our fault? Are we these monsters or and uh could you for our listeners talk a little bit about currency and storage bias and maybe a little bit about the dark ages yeah i mean i i i do think that we could move into a much more real-time peer-to-peer sort of economy where instead of people going and you know, working for a company, you know, selling your time to some corporation to get this money to go buy stuff from some other corporation where people sold their time to make that stuff. You know, this weird kind of indentured servitude. It's, you know, it's as old as Joseph and Pharaoh in the Bible, you know, when they decided, well, what are we going to do when when the seven years of famine come? It's like, oh, we're going to enslave people and they're going to have to, you know, because we're going to have all the grain. Um, it's it's that storage bias right there. You know, it's as old as it's as old as Torah. So it's it's uh, uh, the system's been understood for a long time. But really, what happened in our civilization is, you know, in the late Middle Ages, we had something that looked a lot more like Etsy or Burning Man. People went to the bazaar with the stuff that they made. They traded it. They had local currencies that were very flow biased. They, local currencies, you know, they kind of lost money over time. You couldn't really hoard them. You know, that they, they really allowed people to, to spend, right? They circulated really well. So I'd come to the market with my grain. I'd get some chickens. I'd get some shoes. I'd get some services. We'd go back. You know, it was, it was a, a, a flourishing economy in the late Middle Ages. People got wealthier faster than they have at any time in history before or since. The problem was that the wealthy weren't really participating in that equation. If you got people going to the local market and just selling stuff and getting wealthy and doing well, what is the king supposed to do? What are the lords supposed to do? You know, how do they make money just by being wealthy? They can't. Right? So what they did was they made all these local currencies illegal, and they even made working for yourself illegal. They, they created the chartered monopoly, which is the proto-corporation, where now you're not allowed to just make shoes Someone, one guy, one friend of the king or the lord now has the exclusive province over shoes, over sugar, over, you know, this kind of grain. So now if you want to be a shoemaker, you've got to work for, you know, his, you know, her, her royal majesty's shoe company or her royal majesty's sugar company or the British East India trading company if you want to have a boat and you want to go do that kind of trading. So now everyone has to work for a corporation. Second, you can't use local currency. All those currencies were made illegal and people had to use what they called coin of the realm, right? Those were centrally issued bank currencies and they were issued at interest. So all of a sudden now you have money. Instead of money being this real-time thing that you trade, now money is something that you pay back over time. 
that's what interest is. You borrow a hundred thousand, you're going to have to pay a hundred and fifty thousand back in five years. It's money literally with a clock built into it. So we ended up with this economy with a clock in it, this economy that has to grow over time. We've got to pay back more to the bank than we borrowed in the first place. So the economy has to grow. Time is money. And we ended up in this expansionist uh, uh, kind of uh, awful uh, colonial uh, uh, civilization that we live in today, where we've got to grow in order to stay still. But we've run out of ways to expand. We don't have any more time. We don't have any more resources. We can't work any harder. You know, and we're making stuff faster than we can even consume it. So the economy can't grow. The economy actually needs to shrink. And that sounds like such a, oh my gosh, that's such an awful thing. Why is that an awful thing? The economy is not you and me. The economy is this number system that we invented in the 13th century in order to keep wealthy people wealthy and slow the rise of the middle class. Well, we can undo that. We've got to undo that. We've got to see the difference between this economic system and human society itself, right? This isn't a call for communism or socialism or anything weird. It's really just a call to wake up and see that we have a money system that's no longer serving our interests as, as a society. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? And, and is, there, is there any predictions or anything that you'd like to well, see happen in the future? Is it pessimistic to think that the world might end? Um, or is it realistic? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I am, put it this way, I am optimistic that there will be a continuity of human civilization. Right? I don't, I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to have seven, eight, nine billion people make it through the next few hundred years. You know, I feel like we are, you know, playing too close to the edge, you know, biologically, environmentally, uh, uh, geopolitically. So I feel like um, something's going to happen that's going to wipe out a majority of us, but not all of us. You know, I think even if a few hundred million people survive whatever it is that we impose on ourselves, um, civilization will live. There'll still be artists and writers and nuclear physicists and brain surgeons, you know, out of a few hundred million people. So I don't think it's going to be Battlestar Galactica, you know, <laughs> a couple of thousand people on spaceships out in the, out in the galaxy. Um, but but I, I do feel like uh, unless we rein it in, unless we as a species come to understand that we're doing some really uh, uh, potentially dangerous things to the environment, um, we, uh, we, we, could, uh, um, we could produce a catastrophic uh, shift. And so we're getting we're nearing the end, but you know in in thinking about that one of the things that always made me really nervous both about the cult of the now where you have these kind of enlightenment types who want to transcend their bodies you know and they connect everything to everything else but you know everything's only on the surface and then also this strange religious silicon valley cult is that because <sighs> Because they're valuing something over material and the, more the chiro, kairos now, everything's fair game to get us to that omega point. Could you speak to that, like the cloud cult and whether or not you know, we should shut that down? 
Well, we don't have to shut it down, but we don't have to, to become a part of it either. I mean, we've got folks out there, you know, whether it's Ray Kurzweil or, or any of these kind of transhumanists who really believe that, um, you know, humanity can upload itself um, into to Silicon and that that's okay. Or that technology is going to, uh, you know, surpass human beings as the uh, dominant form of life. Um, you know, that, that, that human beings are really only valuable insofar as they can process information. And that once computers are better at processing information than people, then we don't really need people except insofar as they can uh, keep the machines going. You know, and that's a human-loathing, self-loathing approach to reality. You know, I think that human beings are special and that the way we experience our specialness is through the incarnate reality that there are all of these aspects to incarnate human existence that are not acknowledged in the ones and zeros of digital simulation. You know, and that we, we discover them by becoming aware of the day and the night, by becoming aware of the cycles of the moon, by becoming aware of the cycles of culture, the ebbs and flows of moods and people. And um, yes, it can be painful, and yes, it's messy, and yes, it's unpredictable, and yes, it's emotional and strange, and there's women involved. My God, but that's not bad. That's good. That's all we have. That's our only real connection to this realm. And um, I don't think that we need to surrender it, however messy and complicated it is, because um, uploading your consciousness is not real right that's not real that's uploading information about you to cyberspace it's not who you are and um the more you believe it is the more you identify with that over this uh, i think the less empowered you are to um direct your own future that's that's 42 minutes um Thanks for sharing it with us. You've been listening to Douglas Rushkoff on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Rushkoff can be found at rushkoff.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you would like to support the show, we urge you become a donor. You'll find the donations links under each episode on the website. Also, we are pleased to announce a special sync event happening in Berkeley, California at this month's end. Stay tuned to SyncBook Radio for more information. Thank you so much, and have a lovely Tuesday. Thank you, Mr. Rushkoff. Thank you. You be good. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right. I'll catch you later. I got to go running. All right. All right. Good. Thanks so much for joining us. This was great. All right. Thank, Thank you. Catch yep. you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bring your fire